we are glad for for this and um, I'll tell you what I'm doing and, and I know that it you know we can go uh, we had three classes on the inspiration of Scripture and what the Scripture say, or just see what Scripture says, largely about itself. And uh, what I want to emphasize for two or three classes, or is the idea of God creating them male and female. We know in our culture that some of those even obvious distinctions between men and women are broken down. What does the Bible say about it? In the first part of the lesson tonight, the first part of the lesson, I'm just going to deal with a few verses in the Pentateuch. Genesis through Deuteronomy. And if you have a question or a comment about some of these specific verses that I mentioned. I ask you to just ask it, make it, whatever. But um, I want us to wait till the end of the, the passages till we draw some general conclusions. What does the Pentateuch teach about relationship between men and women? Uh, but again, that's not to limit you on the specific verse, but I'm just talking about broad conclusions. Okay, our first passage about God created them male and female is in Genesis 1, as you might expect. Genesis 1. And uh, I'll let other people uh, do some reading here. Uh, Josh, would you want to read Genesis 1, uh, 26 through 28? Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Okay, very good, very good. So Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 26 through 28. A key idea here, God creates men and women in his image. But God, God creates mankind in his image. In his image. That is stated three different times in Genesis 1 in verse 27. Uh, I believe it's stated three different times uh, there. But it's, it's strongly emphasized in that text. But also, the reason we read this tonight is that statement in verse 27. He created them, male and female. He created them. Now, Genesis 2 may make the creation of woman sound like an afterthought. But that was God, it was God's intention from the beginning to create us male and female. 
The text is relating to us, God's creation, in a way that we can grasp. But from the beginning, being male and female was a big part of God's creation. Genesis 5 verse 2 will echo this statement when it says He created them male and female and He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. So Genesis 1 27, Genesis 5 2, a male and female created in God's image. One of the reasons for the creation of mankind, male and female, is because of those words in verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill all of the earth. God creates us, male and female, for the purpose of procreation, the purpose of having children. You remember when Noah brings animals upon the ark, he is told that he's to bring two of animals, and in certain animals, clean animals, he is to bring seven. But he is to be careful to bring them male and female. If he doesn't, there's not going to be a long-term purpose of bringing them on the ark. We know a part of us being male and female is simply uh, that children can be reproduced and the world can continue to go on. But let's look at the passage in Genesis 2. Genesis 2. Uh, in Genesis 2, uh, verses 18 uh, through 25, Claudia, would you want to read that? 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field <clears throat> and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not a helper there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep, deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were washing. Okay, very good, very good. So this refers to God's creation of the woman from the man. Who was created first? Man. But woman is created from man in this particular passage. And uh, he creates... Um, he takes a rib out of his side. They are born, they are made not as competitors to each other, but they are to be made, she is a helper to the man. And the covenant that exists between a husband and wife is a picture of the covenant between God and mankind. In, in a proper marriage, it is a revelation uh, to some degree of God's relationship with uh, humanity. Now, uh, what was the phrase that was used when the Bible was talking about John the Baptist? 
And the Bible says there has not been a greater prophet. How, how does it say that? Born of woman. It includes most of us, doesn't it? Born of woman. And, but 1 Corinthians will make a point of that. 1 Corinthians 11 is a passage that we want to look at a little bit in our time uh, together. Not tonight, but ultimately in this discussion. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Bible talks about that woman was first created from man, but now man comes into the world through woman. There is an interdependence of male and female in God's created order. You can't say, a man can't say, whether he marries or not, he can't say, I don't need women for anything. And a woman, whether she marries or not, can't say, I don't need men for anything. Because in order to get here, in the beginning, it took, all, it took both uh, a male and a female. Now, Nothing I've said there is too revolutionary. Uh, but um, let's look at just a couple of passages. And uh, if I'm missing some in the Pentateuch that are really fundamental to this discussion, add them and uh, add, tell me and I will add them to our discussion. But look at, we want to look at Leviticus 27. We want to look at Numbers 30. And then we're going to look at one other passage, just just one verse. But in Leviticus 27, verses 1 through 8, and I recognize too as you're turning there, I kind of asked you an impossible task earlier. I said, if you want to make a comment on the passage or, or a question about the passage, we're trying not to draw overall conclusion. That's, that's hard to do. I realize that. So I will be lenient if you start drawing some conclusions as far as trying to uh, keep you in check from that. But in Leviticus 27, verses 1 through 8, uh, just trying to get an idea of what this says. Roman, would you want to read that? 27, 1 through 8, verses 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, If anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the evaluation of a person, and the evaluation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old, shall be 50 shekels of silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the evaluation shall be 30 shekels. If the person is from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the evaluation shall be for a son is for five years old. The evaluation shall be for a male twenty shekels, and for a female ten shekels. If the person is from a month old up to five years old, the evaluation shall be uh, three shekels of silver. And if the person is sixty years old or over, then the evaluation for a male shall be fifteen shekels, and for a female ten shekels. And if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest. And the priest shall value him, and the priest shall value him according to what the valuer can afford. Okay, very good, very good. Now, <clears throat> let's just go. What this says, it says, if it's talking about if a person is vowing uh, a vow, uh, a man makes a difficult vow, a person makes a difficult vow, and apparently it is it is some vow like sacrificing yourself or giving yourself 
to the Lord. And he's talking about at what stages of life, what that price would be. The, fir the first stage is from 20 to 60. In, in each case, he divides the male from the female. He said for a male, it is how much is your valuation? 50 shekels. And all of this is in shekels. 50 shekels. A female? 30. Now, if you have the ages uh, from 5 to 20, then the valuation is what? 20 to 10. Then you have the um, from a month to five years. The valuation of the male, five shekels in the, in the female. And then if you're plus 60, plus 60, and uh, I'm right there with you people. Uh, what we would draw is uh, what? 15 for the male, 10, 10 for the female. Now, I think what that is doing is the different prices, these ages and sex would draw in the slave market. And if they make a vow to dedicate themselves in such a fashion that this would be what was owed. Does this say anything long term about male and female? I'll let you make that decision in just a second. Doesn't say much spiritually, does it? May say much, may say a little bit physically. One that says something more spiritually is in Numbers 20. Now, can you all see on this side behind, you know, if I write right here? Can you, okay. Numbers 30. Look at Numbers 30. Numbers 30 only has 16 verses. And it too deals with the subject of vows. And the Bible says in Numbers chapter 30 that um, if a man makes a vow in verse 2 and makes a binding obligation, he's not, he cannot violate his word. He keeps his vow. He does whatever comes out of his mouth. So a man must keep his vow. But the text goes on to describe a woman's vow. And let's suppose this is a younger woman that is in her father's house. She's in her father's house in verses 3 through 5. She makes a vow. Her father hears of it. What does her father have the option to do? Cancel. He has the option to cancel it. He doesn't have to cancel it. He may not cancel it, but he at least has uh, the option. I'll call her a girl because she's still in her father's house. Now, in verses 6 through 8, it is the same circumstance, except now she is a woman who is married and she is in her husband's house. Her husband hears her vow. She makes a vow to the Lord. The husband says, I don't like that vow. He too has the ability to disannul or stop that vow, doesn't he? 
The man makes a vow, he has to keep it. The woman makes a vow, uh, if her father doesn't annul, annul the vow, she keeps it. If her husband doesn't annul the vow, he keeps it. Now, if she is a widow or if she is divorced and she makes a vow, uh, her vow is to be kept, verse 9. But in verse 10 and 11, if she vowed it in her husband's house and her husband heard of it but said nothing about it, here the husband sees it. He doesn't seek to annul it. He doesn't seek to stop it. Then the text says she is bound by every uh, obligation. And uh, in verse 10, in verse 11. Now, verse 13, every vow and every binding oath to humble herself, the husband may confirm it or the husband may annul it. Verse 13. The husband may confirm it. The husband may annul it. Now, ponder that just a second. The only other passage that I will allude to here is one that I used to wonder why it made Scripture at all. Um, but now... I guess I don't have to ask that question. In Deuteronomy 22 and verse 5, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Now, I apologize. As always, the board has writing everywhere in every direction. Okay, and, uh, and, and Lord willing, after I finish this, this set of series, I'll be glad to send notes to whoever wants them, if you're not um, getting to copy them down well. But, but just kind of pulling these passages together, and I'm not making a claim that this is everything that the Pentateuch says on this subject. I do think this is several things, and this is representative but what conclusions would you draw about male and female and their relationships with each other just from putting all these passages together? What conclusions would you draw big picture wise? I think you'd see the headship of the man and the uh, uh, in marriage. Okay. And, uh, in particularly, which of those passages would make that stand out? Which of those that we dealt with? The one where she, the wife makes a vow. Yeah, number 30 really makes that point strongly, I think, about male leadership in the family. Male leadership in the family. Um, and uh, so the husband, his vow is binding. He doesn't have someone who can come along after him and say, no, 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 you can't do that. I'm not going to let you do it. He doesn't. But if he is the father, he can say that to his daughter. If he is the husband, he can say that to his wife. But he must keep his vows. So, so it does seem like that the principle that we see in the New Testament that husbands are the head of the wife. That, that that is not something that just started in New Testament time. 
That, that that was a purpose of God from the beginning. Now, I understand that we may say, well, that was the culture in New Testament times. That was even more the culture in Old Testament times. Yes, but if we believe that Scripture is inspired of God, as we stated in the first three lessons, if we believe that, that ultimately this is not just conveying a set of the customs of the time, but it transcends that day and that time to teach eternal truths for all people of all time. And first of all, I would ask, how are we so certain, even if you took a view that this is kind of cultural, how are we so certain that our culture did better or does better than their culture? You look at our culture and I might ask, I don't know we got any room for arrogance on any issue like this. Because we're not doing all that right. Whether, whatever the subject would be. What else would you say? You do see that that we would say to Joshua. So, from the top there we see God created mankind in His image. But, clearly from Deuteronomy, that image is being expressed in different ways. I mean, even in the garden, if if there was no difference, then it would be awfully hard to uh, fulfill the be fruitful and multiply command. Right? So there are differences between yeah. them, and that even filtered into like how they dress in Deuteronomy. Exactly. There are distinctions between male and female. Both male and female equally represent God's image. We both, we're both created in God's image. That's not just said to the man. That's not just said to the woman. That is said to both. We are created in God's image and we're created in God's likeness. There are more things probably we share than that we have in difference. But at the same time we say that, that doesn't mean those differences that exist between male and female are insignificant. God created them male and female. I will tell you something you don't know, and I don't know. We have no clue as to what color the skin of Adam and Eve was. And you know one thing I would take from that? It doesn't make a difference. Totally indifferent. But we do know one was a man and one was a woman. And that distinction, as Deuteronomy underlines, is meant to be observed. Now, there may be different things in our culture that distinguish a man from a woman. Uh, there may be different things in our culture. But we don't want to run over that basic principle that we don't want to break down those distinctions. I saw Mary and then I saw Tony, I believe. Josh's point. Okay, okay. And Tony? Yeah, just back up just a little bit because it's kind of where you started though that well I mean he had to make them male and female because he wanted them appropriate but he didn't have to right but then there's examples from nature that asexual reproduction okay that God could have made this that way but he did it yeah and he did that it is true. for a purpose and so let's not just say that um, 
that well he had to make the best and best do with what he had but it's just more he intentionally did this for a reason for our benefit yeah and so that is a good that is a good trying point. to read into this of like this actually was the better of the option that he intended this to be a relationship between individuals and also symbolic of his relationship with us yeah and so it's kind of like well, why did God make the sun, moon, and stars? Well, because he did it for a purpose to show us something. You know, he didn't just like, well, I don't know. Let's just throw something out there. Like, all of it was with purpose, and it's just us revealing why he made that, uh, or why he actually drew that conclusion. Okay, that it's, a, it's, it's a good thought. It is a good thought. And so even here with, like, these valuations or, or with the, the vows and the headship of a, of a man over his wife, like, there's reason behind that more than just just something arbitrary. Like he, yes. he planned this, he intended this when he made them there. Yes. How many times have we told our children something that we know at the moment it was not within their capability to see that there was a purpose behind it? But there was a purpose behind it. Could it be? that God, and the gap between God and us is greater than the gap between us and our children. Could it be that God tells us things and may not give an explanation as to the why and, and maybe nowhere in Scripture is the purpose laid out. Now, I, I'm not against, if God lays out a purpose, us seeing the purpose. I'm not, I'm not against that at all. But, but, but even if He doesn't state the purpose, does it mean there is none? And, and so what you said, yeah, it, asexual reproduction is possible, uh, but, uh, but this is, there's a purpose in his creating this male and female. Of course, I, and, and I didn't uh, mean to deny that, but just saying that male and female is tied to, to, to God's blessing upon that. And we see all throughout Scripture this born of woman. Thing he doesn't that. tell us all the ins and outs. But he does give glimpses to why. Yeah. And that we can see that in a, in a marriage relationship, you have seen how that has been developed between you and Christy. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Uh, it, it helps draw us nearer, and and it, and it has purpose. And Anne? Well, just um, going on what Tony was talking about, I think that we, uh, that God has created lots of human relationships that help us see different parts of his character and how we can draw near him and where we fit within his plan and like um you know king, like kings on earth helps us yeah. see how jesus yes kingdom that's right that's right is so much better um master servant um you know brother sister just the whole concept of the family yeah. and um Christ in the church yes. being parallel to, to marriage. And so yeah. like Tony was saying, all of these different relationships that exist among human and humans, and almost every one of them, God has, well, maybe every one of them, God has created that relationship for us to see a piece of Him and mm -hmm. how He loves us and who He yeah. is and who we are and how we can, what we can learn from that particular kind of relationship about God and who we are. And yeah, I like the way you said a piece of himself. Um, 
we see a piece of himself. We see a glimpse of his glory in all these human relationships. And when you look at a good marriage that's working, it is a constant reminder of Christ and church. Now, I know we have to be spiritual to think in those terms. But, but, but of all people, we should maybe train ourselves to look at things that way and to see things through those eyes. But those are very good comments. Very helpful. This and, is just something really simple. But all throughout the creation narrative God creates and then he says it's good yeah there's sexual difference because it's good yeah. it's good for there to be sexual difference and there is a there is multiple benefits of that the first of which is just having a man having a friend having a helper yeah but it's good yeah exactly and, and the difference the difference the things that men are strong at and women are strong at sometimes vary uh, but Aren't you glad that both exist in our world to complement and help each other? And uh, so, you know, it's, it, but it is. It, there's, there's wisdom in God's design as all of you all are stressing. And those are, those are great thoughts. Now, the thing, one of the things we're going to deal with ultimately is how does this affect? We're not going to answer every question about how it affects uh, things in the family and, and things in the congregation. We may have more to say about the congregation than the family. But when we have, um, well, let me just be frank. I, and it also, there's a little interesting story here with this. But about 10 years ago, there was a congregation in a town I once preached in. And I visited this church a couple of times trying to open up communication with this congregation because I had taken a class with the preacher in school. Um, that, and this was a church of Christ that got a woman preacher. And I was utterly stunned. I, I was. I, I, I just never even dreamed of that happening in my lifetime. And I realized, um, I haven't preached on that. I've never talked about that. I just assumed everybody agreed about that. And um, so after, after a few weeks or a month or whatever it was, I got a couple of lessons that I was going to speak on a Sunday night. And it's Sunday night, we met at 5, and uh, it was about, I guess, 10 till 5, one Sunday night. And I'm going to preach the first of these lessons. And in comes a couple who had never been at services before. And... Um, uh, she was from India. Her, her dress and things indicated she was living. She, they, they lived in Tampa for years and years, but she was from India. Uh, her husband was born in the United States, but they had a couple of kids. And, and, uh, and, and, I, and I, I was looking at this couple, and I, oh, you know, I knew I was going to preach, and I thought, you know, the first lesson for them to hear a lesson about women preaching, I, that wouldn't be my choice. And, uh, and I was thinking about, should I change your lesson? 
And so, in everybody in the congregation, I don't know how everybody was just looking there at the right time, but everybody swarms them and tell them we're glad to, to have you. And when I finally make it to them, and she said, you know, I looked on your website, you're the preacher. I said, yes, and she says, let me ask you a question. She says, what do you think about women preachers? <laughs> I said, that is a good question. Wait just a few minutes and I'll tell you what I think about that. But that really happened. I could not believe it. And, uh, and so ultimately, we want to come to that subject. But, but what, what I want to is also see that, that all these things in the Old Testament, just like you were saying about human relationships, all of these have a purpose as well. And maybe we should learn something from this. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests were men. You know what, what tribe were the priests from? Priests were from what tribe? Levi. Levi. Priests were from the tribe of Levi. And priests were from the family of Aaron. The family of Aaron. I found that the phrase Aaron and his sons... Aaron and his sons is used at least 38 times in the New American Standard Bible in the first few books of the Old Testament. 38 times. Uh, and all of those are from Exodus uh, to Numbers except one reference in 1 Chronicles 6. But, but constantly, and over and over you see the phrase sons used. Even sometimes when uh, it is talking about, um, it, it's, it doesn't have the full phrase, Aaron and his sons. They were, the priests were men, is what I'm trying to stress. In the Old Testament, kings were men. Now, let me first deal with the elephant in the room there. Who is the exception to that? Athaliah is the exception. Now, how do I know? There are two reasons I know that Athaliah is not a proper ruler. You read about her in 2 Kings 11 and 12, in 2 Chronicles 22 verse 10 to 23. How do I know that she is not a proper ruler? She's not of the line of David. Keegan, did you have a... You're, or are you stretching? Okay. He's just not of the line of David. But another thing that is striking is in the book of Kings, there is no effort to coordinate her rule with the rule of the king of Israel at that time. You remember how that happens? They became king of Judah in this year of the king of Israel. Or this person becomes king of Israel in this year of the king of Judah. That happens, I believe, in every single case till the kingdom of Israel is no more. That always uh, there is a... Um, there is a, uh, what do you call it when you're relating one line to another like that? Correlation? Correlation correspondence. Correspondence. Uh, I can spell correspondence easier, Sarah. So uh, I think correspondence. Very good. Is it A there? No, you've got it right. Okay. Uh, so there's a connection between the rulers 
uh, of these kingdoms. I know she's not a proper ruler, so, so Athaliah was, should never have been in that position. What is an indication? What would be an indication in the Old Testament that kings were intended to be men? Maybe more than one. But think about it. You all know it. Deuteronomy. Well, I was going to say one of it, well, not the one in Deuteronomy, but one of the roles of the king was to lead the army. Lead the okay. okay. So, and although there are warrior princesses, um, that's probably not a typical yes. thing. Yes, it, it, you're right. You're right. Because of their role in the military, it was not normal in the ancient Near East for for women to be in that role. I also have an illustration now. I don't want to get lost uh, of it, but remind us we'll tell it sometime. But, but also, Deuteronomy 17, what is a king not to multiply? Money, horses, and wives. Money, horses, and wives. Particularly important here is wives. And Deuteronomy 17, 70, the assumption is that the king is going to be male and therefore he's not going to multiply these things. Um, now, um, so, so we see some background in the Old Testament. Do we have some people who were prophetesses? Yes. And there will be a class we will try to deal with that. But the priests were men. The kings were men in, in, in the Old Testament. Also, when we get to the New Testament, all the apostles were men. Uh, the list of the apostles is given in Matthew 10, verses 2 through 4, and they were all men. Uh, the apostles were men. Uh, the uh, elders were to be men because, again, just like the kings, uh, they were not. They are not to multiply wives. They are to have one wife in First Timothy chapter three and in verse two. So priests, kings, apostles, elders uh, in the New Testament, uh, all of these were men. Maybe that leaves us with the conclusion there's something about God choosing them. And uh, does that mean God loves men more? No. Does that mean uh, women can't serve in the kingdom? No. But it does mean divisions of labor. And, so, and those are all subjects that we want to pursue. We're all subjects that we want to pursue in our time together. We may even pursue some more about whether a woman... Uh, and Phoebe's called a deacon in Romans 16.1, but we remember, if you remember my lessons on being a deacon, that that applies to all Christians. Uh, was that used of her in an official sense, like she was a deacon of a local congregation, or was it used in the sense that she is a servant? Uh, and, and we can talk about uh, all of those things ultimately. Uh, but... Um, I would say too, from the very beginning, understand that it's not just talking about male privilege, as some might call it. This is also a statement of male responsibility. The sign of the covenant between God and Moses 
was the Sabbath. But the sign of the covenant between God and Abraham was circumcision. That's going to apply to the males and not the females. In Genesis 17, every male of the house of Abraham who is eight days old was to be circumcised. And you remember even Paul in the New Testament boasted, I was circumcised the eighth day in Philippians chapter 3. John the Baptist was circumcised the eighth day. Jesus was in Luke 1 and 2. So circumcision applied to them. The sign of the covenant with Abraham is missing in women. To me, that is a reminder of the deep responsibilities of male leadership. I think that most men in our culture, and there are exceptions, take a very serious view, even if they're wives, have good jobs, even if their wife has a job where they get more money. Most men take serious the responsibility to provide some kind of financial stability for the family. Seems like that to me. But when we come to spiritual leadership, do most men take that responsibility? An average Church. Now, I saw this from the last year they could have a survey. I don't remember what that last year was. The last year they could have a survey, uh, the last survey I saw of this, what is the percentage of church makeup across the United States as far as male and female? What would you guess? It's like 60-40. Okay, very close here. 61-39. 61-female. <laughs> 31 males. Now, that doesn't say all these churches are right, but right off the bat, that tells you that probably some men are falling pretty short in that responsibility, just generally across culture. Now, Gary, you had a, you had a comment or a question to say. I, I taught my boys growing up, you know, their role as men, when they became men, and if they became a father, they're primary job was to provide, protect, and proselytize. Okay, that's good. That's a good alliteration there. Uh, provide, uh, protect physically, and to teach your children, proselytize about God. Teach them when they rise up and when they sit down and when they walk by the way. And, and, and both parents have a part in that. It's hard sometimes raising kids when you got two parents pulling in the right same direction. It's really difficult. You got one pulling here and another pulling there, like like two uh, animals in a yoke trying to go different directions. It's difficult to do. Uh, but both parents have a part. But yes, uh, the Bible says, "Fathers, uh, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord." Ephesians six four. Go ahead. Wouldn't you say even that God programmed males that way? I mean, we're stronger in the protection aspect in the providing. Whenever I've seen 
women that made more money than their husbands that created problems. Sometimes, it, sometimes it, it can. But sometimes it can because of pride and, and things like that. Of course, that may that kind of can can uh, can. Uh, it might be a problem in attitude, simply, you know. Uh, but I know what you're saying. But I think too. Remember something I said. We'll, we'll let you go in just just a second. Remember something I said recently. And um, Susie Davis found almost found this survey. It was something real close. That if that um, if a Family knows nothing about Jesus, and a why and a child is converted first. And the child comes back to his family and is excited to tell the story. Seven percent chance the whole family is converted. If the wife becomes a Christian and she tells her family, twenty-three percent, but over three times higher than if it's a child. But if a father does, a husband does. It's like 91%. Could it be that some of these things God said, kind of like uh, Tony was saying earlier, and, and Anne was saying, there's a purpose in a lot of these things, even though we can't see the purpose. Maybe just the way that we're made up, men taking spiritual leadership is more likely to shape and conform their family to the image of Christ. I do appreciate you bearing with me and I do appreciate your comments greatly enhanced class. Um, if you can tell me some things you would like me to deal with or some passages that I may not know about or may not have thought of that you want me to deal with in these next couple of weeks or so. But thank you for being here. And uh, yes, Josh? The demographic from the 61 to 39? Okay, 2019. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, David, would you want to lead us in prayer as we close? Dear God and Father in heaven, we're thankful for this Lord's Day that you've blessed us with, and we're thankful for this time that we've had to study from your word. And we pray that we'll take the things that we have learned and use them in our lives and share them with others as well. We pray that you'll be with us throughout the week. That We'll let our light shine so that others might see you in us and that you might receive the glory. We're so thankful for the gift of your Son, grace and mercy, love shown toward us. Pray that we'll keep that foremost in our thoughts as we live our lives from day to day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.